And I'm so excited to announce our guest star today, Vanessa Otero. She is really one of the few people I'm lucky to know who is on track to actually change this world as CEO and founder of Adfontes Media. So Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I have a lot of questions prepared. We'll see how many we get through. Um, but if you could just start off and let us know a little bit more about you and how Adfontes came to be. Yeah. At Fontes Media, uh, what we do is we rate the news for reliability and bias. Uh, it's a topic that's of uh, a lot of interest to so many people, given that we've got this crazy news landscape, this crazy information environment that's got everything from like really reliable, like great journalism to um, you know lots of opinion and analysis and pundits and hot takes to um, misleading information, uh, so-called fake news. It's a lot for people to deal with. Uh, how it started was I was a patent attorney. I uh, just Loving my patent attorney job, uh, but also very interested in news and politics. And in the run-up to the 2016 election, um, you know, I noticed at the level of vitriol, if you recall, like Hillary Trump election, oh, it yeah. got pretty intense, especially on social media like Facebook. And people would fight with each other about um, you know, their preferred political candidates and causes, and they tended to not agree very much. And they, you know, people lost a lot of family and friend relationships over it. Uh, and what I noticed was that they would share these articles that would support their side, but not be very convincing to the other side. So somebody on the left would be like, well, I'm right, because look at this article from HuffPost. Um, it, it says like, you know, Donald Trump is blah, blah, blah. And uh, people on the, on the left or on the right would be like, well, I don't believe that, that's from HuffPost. And then folks on the right would say, I'm right because look at this article from Breitbart, which says Hillary Clinton is such and such. And people on the left just wouldn't agree with that either. So I was like, you know, there are some news sources that are better, some are that are worse, some that are like, okay. And there's some that are left and right, but then there's some that are very extremely so. So how can people seem to be having a hard time telling the difference between these things? So I'll, you know, tell the short version of the story, but I created a, a visual chart because I'm a nerd uh, and I did this in my free time as a, <laughs> as a lawyer. Uh, but when I put it online to talk to my family and friends about it, uh, it went massively viral. Uh, it took over my life for <laughs> a couple of years as like this side blog project. Uh, but then I realized that there was like a, a real need for this data, a need for this, uh, like a methodology to uh, to rate news because we didn't really have news ratings. Uh, we've never lived in an era where we have tens of thousands of news and news like information sources. So for the first time, we sort of need labels like um, like content ratings on them. And so over the last five years, I've developed this business. A lot of things have happened. Uh, including us sitting here today that led up to us sitting here today. 
That's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think we all remember those Facebook days and I think people were just posting and sharing whatever resonated with them. There was very little fact checking. So I think it's so, it's so interesting how it all got started. And I'm just thinking you were working as a patent lawyer. Can you describe the moment that you decided you wanted to go all in on this? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it seemed, a, it's hard to pinpoint a moment, but uh, I mean, there was definitely a moment where I left, right? <laughs> so um, it was, it was when it went viral, it was so time consuming. I mean, I didn't have a bunch of like Twitter followers or like, I was not a social media influencer, but all of a sudden, like everyone on the internet had an opinion about this, the placements on this chart. And they were like, well, CNN should be higher or lower, more left or more right. You know, everyone had an opinion on, uh, on their favorite news sources and their uh, less favorite news sources. Uh, so just like responding to all these folks, it was really like the an MVP of a product, you know, like in startups, you talk about MVPs and um, it was the most minimally viable product, literally an, an image. Um, and, but I got to talk to people who would be like future customers and like what they wanted. They kept asking for data they, and they would, they would complain. They'd be like, well, this is bias because you're bias. And I was like, well, that's true. So how would I make it less biased? And people would complain like, well, this isn't, this is just your opinion. This isn't like, uh, this isn't academically rigorous. And I was like, you're right, totally. But what would, what shocked me was that, you know, teachers would use it in classrooms and textbook publishers would ask for licenses to print it in textbooks. And I'm like, don't do that. This is like not, this is biased and not academically rigorous. <laughs> yeah, I was a lawyer. Like I, you know, I wrote like legal papers and stuff and I know the value of like citing sources and having it be correct. And like all that is like super important to me. So that's why I like, I wanted to like fill that need and like respond to it. Like I wanted to create the methodology. I, I was like, I have to be able to recruit folks from different perspectives for me, like left center and right uh, in order to mitigate biases. I just have to. Um, and I need to get bigger samples in order to make it more academically rigorous. Like this needs to be repeatable, uh, replicatable. And uh, that's how I started like getting the idea to cobble together groups of analysts that could do this from different political backgrounds, different like diverse backgrounds. And uh, then people kept, just kept asking for more things like, you know, what would be cool is if this was like interactive and I mean, going from this image, which I created on Microsoft Visio because I don't know how to use Photoshop uh, to like making an interactive chart. I'm like that software development, which I, I do not do like and I'm busy as a lawyer. So um, I, I started trying to think of like, would people give us money? Um, could we raise money in order to put together what we wanted? And they did on an Indiegogo campaign at first. And then later, um, like we started to get some commercial interest. Like, so it was, I worked on this, you know, really part-time and, and with a very dedicated group of folks who were like, yeah, we'll do this with you. Like we'll do some analyst ratings um, and help however we can. So it really turned from a project into a company. Um, and then we got some commercial traction towards the end of 2020. And that's when I was like, well, if we're going to deliver for commercial customers, then like we, it's got to be all in. Uh, so that's when I really tried to uh, raise some some real like investment capital and in user revenue to build it out further. That's awesome. That's a great segue to another question I had, 
which was, you know, I know that it got its start, AdFont has got its start in the education world. So when did the use case of the advertising industry arise? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. My background is not in the advertising industry. Um, you know, my my whole world is, <laughs> is pretty much that now, right? But um, the when I we saw teachers using this in, in classrooms. So some of our first products were like, all right, how can we make it easier for teachers to teach our methodology, uh, you know, to search sources on our chart. But then folks from the media industry uh, started reaching out on online and, uh, and connecting with me. And they were the ones that were like, you know what, there's a, there's a brand safety play here. There's a brand safety opportunity. And I was like, cool, what's brand safety? And I, I have never heard the term before. And they're like, well, it's this concept that like brands don't want to advertise next to things that are like objectionable in a lot of ways, like, you know, um, hate speech or like sexually explicit content or scams or terrorist content, you know, and I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And they probably don't want to advertise next to misinformation or really polarizing uh, controversial content. Um, but it was folks in the media industry reaching out to me through like LinkedIn um, and just like emailing, like this whole company came together because people found this chart online and reached out to me. So I like pretty much everybody I work with now, I met on the internet. <laughs> it's, it's, it's totally wild. That's really cool. And why do you think, I mean, obviously we know it just went viral and all these things and, and you, you know, because I think the timing was also really there for misinformation, fake news, all the things were really top of mind for people. But why do you think it resonated so well for in the market in general, like not even necessarily specific to advertising? Good question. And I have spent a lot of, uh, a lot of time over the years trying to answer that same question because it really took me by surprise it was like, it was talking to me. I'm like, why do people care about this so much? And it comes down to a couple of things. One, it's visual, you know, it's, it's visual and it explains a really complex uh, concept in a really short period of time. And I think this, you know, for folks who might have not seen like the media bias chart, it's a two-dimensional infographic. And so from top to bottom, it's, um, you know, sources for reliability and from left to right it's sources for like left to right political bias and whether you're like you know very politically astute and savvy and follow the the news or you just like have no idea and you can't tell the difference between like a really good news source and a fake news source like it gives you a mental framework and so it it was this rare thing that actually worked uh, for people to communicate about the news together so like People tell me all the time, oh, I share this with my family members, um, even my family, especially my family members who disagree about stuff. And, you know, the nature of like trying to change people's minds on the Internet, it's a tough thing. But it was this rare thing that would work because even if people disagreed ultimately about the uh, the the placement of the source, they could still like agree on it relatively. They could be like, well, you know, my news source is still a little too far right um, or still too far left. I think it's more towards the middle, um, but they could still agree that like, you know, Fox News is more to the right than uh, than like the Wall Street Journal. And like MSNBC is more to the left than CNN, right? Like they could agree on relativity. Um, and so, people on the left and the right or in the middle could uh, say, okay, we could probably agree that the lower sources, like, you know, 
the lower they are on the reliability scale, the um, the less we should rely on them, right? We should we could probably do with some better news sources. So it's this rare thing that worked, and that just balances this like um, nuance versus uh, um, like uh, versus ease of consumption, right? So it and that's a hard thing to do. Usually, how people uh, talk about the media is in these like overbroad generalizations. They're like, "Well, CNN is garbage." Like, okay, what are you even talking about when you're talking about CNN? They have like a, the TV show, and then they have the the website um, and and the app, and then on the TV on the TV channel they have like uh, a bunch of different shows from morning to night. Like, which what CNN are you even talking about? And people would complain about like the mainstream media. Like, well, what is what what is that? Like the more specific you can get, the more you, people can agree, right? So when we have analysts, we have left, right, and center analysts, when they look at one article, um, it can even be from CNN. They can be like, this CNN article is a left-leaning opinion article. All three of them agree. This CNN article is a fact-reporting, minimally biased article. And so we want to get granular um, and that helps people like have really meaningful discussions about the news. Yeah, I think that's so important. And all the work you've done to acknowledge, okay, we all as individual have our own bias, you know, what can we do to combat that? And I think like having, you know, I've, I've, I've been working with you for a while now and you've always, every, every time you guys add new analysts, you always like, let us know. And you have quite the team now that is, you know, from all spectrums of the of the media bias mm -hmm. <laughs> um, scale so I think that's it's just really awesome I definitely can vouch that the methodology is sound and it's it's really exciting to to see you know this the, the kind of hope that this could bring right to get people to agree like you said like it, instead of just talking about it so broadly so this is it's really cool yeah um, about the like the hope like this the work that I do like really does give me a lot of hope for America, especially because you know our analysts. I mean, they we have sixty analysts again, left, right, center, and like they're talking about the most contentious topics in the United States every day: race, abortion, guns. Right, are very controversial politicians, and they'll they can agree on stuff still, right? And there's just not a lot of setting. It seems like there's not a lot of settings right now where you get that um, people being able to talk rationally and reasonably about uh, contentious issues. Totally. Bringing that back to the advertising industry, what do you think is one lesson or the biggest lesson that advertisers should be learning from the work you're doing with AdFontes? It's that they have the power to change the world. Look, the advertisers dollars drive so much of our society and you know it's not about uh you know when when folks initially talked about like brand safety like oh you don't want your brand to be next to something that people find yucky right i mean that's sure that's like that's one concern um but it's it's more than that like there's way more for advertisers to gain by responsibly picking where they invest their ad dollars in the information ecosystem, right? Um, like investing in good reputable journalism is just as important, if not, I would argue more important than just avoiding misinformation and polarization, right? You, I mean, you, you need both, but like where we are today, 
advertisers for quite a few years now have pulled uh, uh, funds away from a reputable journalism, especially in local, a lot of that uh, in, for a number of reasons. Some a lot of that money has gone towards platforms, right? That are aggregating and distributing the news and like less directly to the publishers, which has been really damaging. But also you have brands that just because of brand safety concerns, um, they're like, well, let's just block all of news and just not at so we don't have to like deal with that risk. But it's really short-sighted. One, because like in the short term, with uh investing in news. Uh, those audiences are super valuable. Like news content is 20 to 25% of all content that's out there, at least across all these formats, across web, across uh, video, across uh, audio. And to not be reaching those audiences is like to re- be missing out on some really good return on your advertising spend, right? Especially right now, like when ad budgets are getting smaller in like this macroeconomic environment, you want to like make it ad dollar go farther. You should put that ad dollar in news. Like it's um, it's it's a better uh, it's a better bet. Uh, folks, like advertisers, I think instinctually know this, but they've gotten scared away from news. Okay, but like bigger picture, um, the, the whole like power to change the world. Here's how I think of it. Look, um, capitalism, like this environment in which we our businesses function, it works best within a strong and stable democracy. And democracy works best when you have a well-informed electorate. A well-informed electorate needs journalism, like good journalism, and like this high-quality like information environment, not one that's just like littered with you know pranks, uh, like partisans and hucksters. You know, that's basically what we have right now. Um, so if brands want to operate in like a strong, stable, capitalistic democracy in which they can like run profitable businesses, they should invest in news. Like it's a direct, uh, it's a direct impact on like on you have the S of ESG. ESG is like environmental, social, and governance. This is the S. This is social, right? They're literally mitigating social risk by ensuring that we have a strong information environment. So there's both short-term and long-term reasons why advertisers need to direct their advertising dollars towards news. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, you know, like you were describing, reaching the audience in a place where they are, but not only where they are, but also where they're the most leaned in, right? Like people are fully paying attention when they're reading news articles and things like Mm -hmm. that versus just scanning through a cooking recipe page or whatever else is out there, you know? Yeah, Um, important stuff. stuff. Yeah, and I think it's, it's been really awesome to see the work you're doing with Adfonte is giving kind of the power back to the brands a little bit to be able to do that in a way that they're comfortable with, you know, Mm -hmm. at Sightly, we're always telling people they need to figure out where they stand on these issues and really make sure that they're being authentic and consistent Mm -hmm. so that they figure out what their brand mentality is. Right. And then they're sticking with that through and through. And so Mm -hmm. that is going through the interactive media bias chart and figuring out where they want to associate their media and where they do not. And then you're able to give them the power to say, this is, this is where I feel comfortable, but I'm still not completely avoiding news. So it's, it's really awesome. 
Yeah. And slightly is it attacking su uh, such an important issue that's so difficult for brands to do? Like you said, like, where do you stand on these issues? And, and there's a lot of things to like take a stand on. Like brands can, cannot just like sit, sit these things out, right? Um, they're if, like you're a participant in society, a powerful participant in society as a brand, right? Things are happening around you. You're advertising in, in this environment. Like uh, in it, as you know, it is very difficult for brands to like, first say, this is what we stand for and this is what our mentality is. And then second, to actually execute on that, right? To make sure that like their spend is consistent with what they say they they uh, do and believe in. Um, and there's so many like avenues to do that, uh, which obviously, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here because that's what you all do at Sightly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's more pressure now than ever, especially amongst younger co consumers, right? They're, they're looking to put their dollars towards brands that align with their values. So it's really important to, for brands to figure that step out. Yep. All right. Switching gears a little bit. Um, I would love you to share a little bit about your experience as a female founder. I know you and I have talked about this a lot and specifically a, a woman of color and how that has been in the experience and also especially working with investors. Um, something I, I know you and I've talked about a lot, but you have some really, really amazing points to, to share. So I want to make sure we had time to touch on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's there. There are a lot of stats out there about you know. So we're a uh, we're a public benefit corporation, which means we're a for profit with a stated public mission, um, and you know that's we're a venture funded company, and raising venture capital. Like there's sort of all these abysmal stats about how uh, only two percent ish of uh, all VC funds go to female founders, and uh, in similar numbers for uh, founders of color. Uh, I think, you know, among the lowest is like, uh, like one, I think it's like something like 1.2% of funding goes towards like uh, black founders. You know, so there's, um, uh, there are a lot of odds to fight against just being a startup, trying to raise money. And then like within, within that world, when it's like, you know, one, 2% of the funding, um, it, that those can be daunting. And people always ask like, well, like what to do about it? Because it's not that people know that this is a problem. Folks in venture know that this is a problem. It's been that way for like a little while. And there are more funds now that are like specifically focused on women and, uh, and people of color, other uh, underrepresented founders, but still this problem persists. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I, I'd have to like try to compare apples to apples, my experience versus uh, founders who don't have like my demographic background to see like how easy or hard it is. And that's sort of, it's hard to do because everybody's got their own unique situation. But I've pitched a lot of investors. <laughs> um, I probably pitched over 250 individual investors. And to date, like, um, you know, I, I had a hard time, um, you know, one, because this is like a social good company. Sometimes like you're in this weird space between um, like doing good and like uh, being profitable. Where like if people look at it, they're like, oh, you're doing good. Shouldn't this just be like a nonprofit? You could get grants from a like philanthropy or something. I'm like, no, we're solving a business problem for people who have like the most money <laughs> in, in the ecosystem, right? And uh, and then people look at the, like in the venture world, they're like, oh, you're doing good. Like, 
is this really profitable? <laughs> so um, I had a hard time even getting into like accelerators or like um, incubators, like these sort of things like uh, tech stars and, and whatnot. Uh, I even had a hard time getting into pitch competitions. Um, so how much of that is because like uh, folks might have like a subconscious or un unconscious bias? You know, it's really hard to say. Like um, I prefer to look at it like, what can we do about this, this issue? So I think there are a few things. Like one, um, you know, folks in VC will say there's not enough female founders or founders of color. Fair enough. Like, I think that is true, right? So um, like, what can I do about it? About it? Like I can encourage uh, female founders, founders of color to start businesses. I can mentor them. I can say like, if you're thinking about this, like here's my, my best advice for how to go about doing it. So like that's step one. Um, two is that we need, um, we need allies. We need like people who are in power to, to be allies, right? Like in, in this situation, it's male allies. Like pretty much all of my investors are men, right? So clearly these men, um, whether or not they've had subconscious or unconscious biases, um, that didn't stop them from investing, right? Uh, they know the power that they have to uh, advance, you know, to, to solve this problem, to advance good businesses, and uh, they acted on it, right? Uh, and and the third thing is like we need folks, like investors, um, whether they're men or women, because look, I I feel like I run up against um, difficulties pitching female investors as well, right? Um, I think there's a existing mental model of what a successful company and a successful founder looks and sounds like. Like um, a female founder might not be as bold and brash in her predictions. Um, a female founder might be might not be like, yeah, we're gonna be the next billion dollar company, right? Um, but that doesn't mean she's not. And so if she has like these like metrics in front of you, like traction, revenue, those are the biggest indicators, right? And you may not understand, like uh, a lot of um, the markets that startup founders serve are just markets that they know. And if that's predominantly white and male and affluent, like those are market, those are different markets than markets that serve uh, women and people of color and, um, and less affluent folks, right? So the markets might look different. You just might not have experience in those, but it doesn't mean that it's not a great opportunity. Yeah, that's amazing. You have had quite a lot of hurdles, but you've been able to jump over them so gracefully. And it's just been awesome to watch. And I'm so excited to see what's in store. Um, I, I actually got the opportunity to listen to one of the podcasts that you did, I think with Sliced was the name. Uh-huh. Yeah. About startups in particular. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, I have to share that it really stuck out to me as you shared a stat on that podcast that my college mentor actually shared with me when I was about 21 years old, which was about how women will, you know, wait until they have eight or nine out of 10 uh, requirements for a job mm -hmm. opportunity before they apply. And men will most likely apply when they have six out of 10. Right. And mm -hmm. what does that, what does that tell you? And, and, you know, she, she shared that with me and it completely changed my entire outlook and probably 
is part of the reason why I've been able to, you know, grow in my career because it's been, you know, she explained to me like, okay, if, if that's the case, then the company might be getting a great deal, but what are you getting? You're not growing, you're not having as much opportunity to grow, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think everything that you shared was just inspiring other women and being able to be there meant, you know, mentoring and through other ways, but also just, you know, getting the word out that like, this is so important and to just go for it because, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's just, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think I saw that stat in Sheryl uh, uh, Sandberg's book, Lean In, and there's a, a couple of other really uh, hard hitting examples of like uh, the differences between the, how men and women approach things in business, and there are differences, right? And uh, it, it it's really helpful when you can like acknowledge those and say like, what can we do about them? So in even in uh, when I was a lawyer, I noticed that like you know, they didn't really teach you how to negotiate your salary when you're in law school. I mean, you're literally a lawyer, like your whole job is going to be negotiating. Right. And so like, shouldn't that be a, just a assumed like normal, important job part of like the interview process. And I was like, uh, since I knew that that training wasn't there. I wanted to provide it for um, like younger, uh, like female law students who are, who are graduating. And I was like, like, let's talk salary. Like, let, like, let me know like what your offer is. And like, here's how much you should be making. And this is so important. Cause if you start, like, I mean, I remember a situation that like, uh, it was, I was happy about the outcome, but I was like also appalled because like, the um, this like brilliant lawyer like a uh, law student going to work at uh, a law firm um, from like I I taught her that she should negotiate and like you know, laid out questions that she should ask at the end of the interview and like um, how she should figure out from like how big the firm was and what their billable rates were and how many hours she was going to be working what she should get paid and the difference like between what she was offered was ninety thousand what she ended up getting was 130 at the beginning of your career like the impact that makes on your total earnings over your lifetime is uh i i mean it just compounds it's unbelievable and to to not know that information um or like the flip side to know that and to be able to to um you take advantage of it and benefit from it i mean it makes all the difference in the world so I'm, i'm super passionate about that stuff yeah, me too. And thank you so much for sharing. Okay, so one last question. Yeah. We love what you're doing, of course, and we know that everyone else who comes across your path will too. So where should people go to learn more about you and Adfontes? So adfontesmedia.com. So it's A-D-F-O-N-T-E-S media, M-E-D-I-A.com. So you can see our uh, free interactive media bias chart on there. And you can search any of the thousands and thousands of news sources we've got rated across websites, TV, and podcasts. You can search a bunch of them for free. Um, Then we've got some other, you can explore uh, all of our other products and services for all the different stakeholders in news media, whether you're a a everyday news consumer, news reader, uh, informed citizen of the world, uh, an educator, advertiser, publisher, um, and so on. So yeah, please check us out. All right. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It was so fun. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Annalise. 
Hi, I'm Joe, one of the producers for Sightly's Breaking Through the Mayhem podcast. We want to thank you so much for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about the guests we had on today, we included additional information about them in the show notes. Finally, if you'd like to be on the podcast or if you know someone that would make a great fit, you can fill out the form at sightly.com forward slash podcast. We hope you have a great day.